0: Hi everyone, this is an audio I put out a couple of years ago called Why you should read parenting books even if you don't have kids. Each of us was a kid and each of us struggled with our helplessness to meet our own needs when we were a kid. We struggled with emotional, psychological and other deficits of our caretakers and the adults around us, and it is a great means of attaining self-knowledge to read some of the books on parenting that I recommend in this audio. This will be episode 97 of the Be Yourself and Love It podcast. Why I think that it's really worthwhile to read books on parenting and raising children, even if you don't have any kids. Um, Some of my favourites include... How To Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk, and Parent Effectiveness Training, and there's also Raising Our Children, Raising Ourselves. Uh, You only need to get one of those. I start with How To Talk So Kids Will Listen, Listen So Kids Will Talk, and if you get as much out of it as I think you will, you can try some others if you still think you need them. So why would you want to read those books? Well, apart from the fact that if you do have children, or plan to in the future, they will equip you with really useful practical tools that you can use in day-to-day life to help deal with so-called difficult behaviour in children. Well, apart from that, the first thing, if you're interested in self-knowledge and improving your life and healing is... They will give you an inventory of ways that you were not spoken to as a child. So you'll be able to compare expert advice and examples on dealing with different kinds of behaviour, difficult behaviour in children that probably most of the parents uh, and uh, adults around you when you were growing up, maybe all of them, didn't know. So it'll help you empathize with your younger self and see that maybe you didn't always get nurtured in the way that you most would have liked to because the people around you didn't necessarily have the skills or tools. I mean, when I went into school as a classroom assistant, I found the skills that I used in these books absolutely invaluable. And, you know, the teachers there that were professionals were very impressed with me and, and saw the effects firsthand of what I was doing. But they weren't asked to read these kinds of books in their teacher training, which is a really great shame. And that's something to do with the, you know, authoritarian structure that schools schools have. Where um, children aren't really seen as means to an e- as ends in themselves, but as a means to an end, you know. I volunteered for a while in primary school as well. It was the same kind of idea. Most of the teachers were really authoritarian. But the difficult kids were not difficult with me. They got the fact that I wasn't trying to cause trouble for them. They could sense that I was on their side. So the teacher took the kids outside to learn about lines of symmetry. And she was doing the whole control the fun thing, you know. But if there's one word out of you guys, you know, uh, we'll, we'll all come back in and you have to be in your best behavior. So, okay, she gave each child a piece of chalk and put them in pairs and said, one of you draw half a shape, the other one complete the shape, and then you can draw on the lines of symmetry. Good exercise. Some of the children just decided to write out their names, uh, just a couple of them. And, man, did she bawl at them. I mean, she was like, is your name symmetrical? And... took the shock off them so as soon as I saw this I just had an instinct and I kind of swooped in and I just went up to one of them and I was like what letters in your name are symmetrical and he just looked up at me quizzically for a moment and then pointed at the capital A I was like okay good you can draw a line of symmetry through the A and then went through his name on O and N whatever letters were symmetrical He put the lines through it. Now, the teacher saw that, and to her credit, she didn't seem terribly challenged by it. You know, she didn't seem like she felt threatened by me doing that. She seemed quite impressed. I really won those kids' respect that day. And they were kids that were considered sometimes to be a bit difficult. Um, I didn't think they were difficult. I thought they needed a different form of education because they weren't the kind of children that could cope with being ordered around all the time. (laughs) Right. Right. If you've got an idea in your head that you've got a job and your job is to teach or to be a parent, then a child just becomes a means to you doing a good job, a good job of being a parent, a good job of being a child. So when you look at that, this is the first stage of healing, really to actually notice where and be empathetic towards yourself for what you didn't get. It's also really an opportunity to learn how to deal with parts of yourself that are a little bit rebellious and when you're you are having inner conflicts. I mean, I spend quite a lot of time journaling at this moment um, and giving myself self-care. And one of the things that I do is... An example from a book I read on parenting is a child spills over a glass of milk and their mother wants to react and force them to clean it up while the child says that they don't want to. And instead the parent got hold of themselves and said something like, "Okay, I have a problem here. The milk's spilled and you don't want to clean it and neither do I. Um, So what should we do? And the child said, I know, we'll get Sophie, who's the dog, to lick it up and I'll clean the rest. Phew, you know, what a relief. What happened there is, the child felt like they had their autonomy respected since they were getting to choose how to solve the problem. Here's another excerpt from a book called How to Teach So Kids Can Learn. It's by the same authors as How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk there are no stupid questions. A special education teacher reported that she was reading a story to her class about a beekeeper when Charlene raised her hand and asked, Do a bee be a bird? The class was electrified by the question. Several children raised their hands and waved them eagerly. The teacher said, Wait a minute. Charlene, That's such an interesting question! What makes you think that a bee could be a bird? Very solemnly, Charlene replied, They've both got wings. Is there anything else that's the same? They fly. You noticed two things that were the same. Class, is there anything that makes birds different from bees? Birds got feathers! Birds is bigger! birds don't sting you. Suddenly Charlene's face lit up. I know, I know, she called out, a bee bee's an insect. All the heads nodded. On the board, the teacher wrote the children's conclusion. A bee is an insect. This story is an excerpt from the fantastic book How to Talk So Kids Can Learn by Adele Faber and Elaine Maslisch. As educators, as caregivers, our role is not simply to give children the right answers, but to help them reach the correct answers through their own thinking process. If someone comes to a wrong conclusion, perhaps the best thing we can do is to empower them by giving them the tools to correct themselves. Here's another anecdote from that book about freeing children from negative roles that they might feel the need to live up to. The following experience shows what can happen when a teacher is determined to see a student in a new light. Daryl Jackson was a large, obnoxious ten-year-old, twice as big as anyone else in my class. Because of his size, you expected him to be more mature. but. He behaved like a big, loud, goofy fool. He'd bop other kids on the head, shove them, fling himself around, run into the hall yelling "Ah!" if he heard someone coming, anything to get attention. If that didn't work, he'd start talking in a loud voice about titties and doo-doo. The kids didn't like him either. He was always putting them down. You didn't know that? You're stupid. On the bus for a school trip, he'd insist on taking up two seats for himself. In the lunchroom, he'd gobble his sandwich and stick out his tongue with half dewed food still on it and laugh. I found myself saying his name over and over again with increasing annoyance. Darryl, stop it! Darryl, be quiet! Sometimes I'd physically push him back into his seat. Darryl, I said sit down! The underlying message in my voice was, I don't like you. Your very presence annoys me. You are my irritant. Once I became so exasperated with him, I made a gesture of tearing my hair out. Daryl's eyes lit up with pleasure. With a big grin, he said, I'm driving you crazy, right, Mrs. Bergen? He had achieved his goal, and not only with me, Every teacher in school knew his name, and they all hated him. At the lunch table, they'd trade Daryl stories. He had succeeded in making himself famous throughout the school. It was almost funny in a horrible sort of way. He was so disruptive that I considered consulting the guidance counselor or school psychologist about him. But there was a stubborn little part of me that decided to take him on myself. I knew that if there was going to be any small possibility of Daryl changing, I would have to change my tactics. But I also realised that I couldn't just do it mechanically. I had to find at least one quality in Daryl that I genuinely liked or admired. Without some real feeling for the child, the whole process would be an exercise of manipulation. Maybe that would be better than nothing, but I was hoping for more. The next day I watched Daryl like a hawk. His one saving grace was that he was talented at drawing. He could look at any object and reproduce it accurately. I saw Felix call him over and show him his drawing. Felix has poor hand-eye coordination and his drawing was barely decipherable. Nevertheless, he pointed to his squiggly lines and told Daryl, look, here's the man about to shoot the dinosaur. I thought Daryl would make fun of him, but instead he just smiled and good naturedly and pointed to the squiggles and said encouraging things like, yeah, and here's an alien coming down in a spaceship. That touched me. So Daryl could be sweet, even generous. Maybe it was because he felt so secure in the area of art. From that moment on, I launched my campaign of positivity. I started by choosing Daryl for small tasks like cleaning the chalkboard or putting away the world books in alphabetical order or feeding the turtle and then thanking him for helping me. It turned out that Daryl really liked animals. I put him in charge of the hamsters for a week and told him that the animals seemed to love it when he held them because he was so gentle. He beamed. Then I went to work on helping the other kids in the class see him differently. Whenever someone needed help, I'd say, oh, get Daryl to show you how that works. He's good at fractions. Or, Daryl, you know a lot about animals. What kind of dog would make a good watchdog? I was hoping they'd think, since the teacher didn't seem as a pest anymore, maybe he wasn't. Whenever I absolutely had to reprimand him, I tried to preface it with something positive. Darryl, I know how hard it is to wait, but Felix needs to finish what he's saying. Or, Daryl, I know it isn't easy to control the urge to get out your seat, but right now I need everyone sitting down and paying attention. After a while, Daryl started saying things like, See, Mrs. Bergen, I'm controlling myself. Or, See, I waited my turn. Or, I wanted to jump, but I didn't. And I'd always respond quickly and warmly. I noticed that, or that was hard to do. Then I started writing short notes to his mother. Dear Mrs. Jackson, Daryl has been in charge of our class pets this month and all the animals are clean, well fed and happy. Sincerely, Mrs. Bergen. Daryl loved that. He asked me to tell his other teachers about him now. I was happy to oblige. Mrs. Kramer, Daryl drew a map of the United States and filled in all the states and capitals. From these small changes in my behaviour came large changes in Daryl. He became very affectionate towards me. He stopped annoying, shoving and teasing other kids. He was always jumping up to help someone draw or read or carry. When his new friend Felix had no money for a class trip, Daryl became despondent and later in the week lent him the money. He became a team player. The enemy of everyone became the friend of everyone. He shared his sandwich, candy, anything. He was Mr. Sociability. He was still loud and abrasive, but now those qualities were combined and tempered with socially desirable traits. The other teachers became aware of Daryl's feelings for me, and they used it to control his behaviour. They'd say, if you don't stop that, I'll tell Mrs. Bergen." And he stop on a dime. He didn't want anything bad about him to get back to me. But in the end, his new behavior never did carry over to the other teachers. They still didn't like him. And he wasn't going to go out of his way to be cooperative or pleasant with people who treated him like a big nuisance. You couldn't intimidate Daryl into behaving better if he felt you didn't care. You had to appreciate him to get appreciation from him. So I think this is a really heartwarming story about how much effect we can have on children by casting them in a new light. The important thing I have always found in my own experience is not making people wrong. So in school, if I saw a child trying to distract the class or the teacher by balancing objects on their face, or any silly activity that might have been construed as attention-seeking behaviour, I would never make out that what they were doing made them a bad person. I'd go down to their level and say something like, do you like balancing objects on your face? And whatever they sheepishly reply, I'd say, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but you might want to wait until recess because the other children, or the teacher, are getting distracted. I really found appealing to children's better nature made them trust me and care for me, and so they were more willing to adapt to my requests out of goodwill. Sometimes when children are perceived as difficult or disruptive, it's because they're playing out a role. Perhaps they're requiring some positive attention, which they rarely get, or they don't know how to be helpful, and they feel like if they try, they'll fail. So it's better to act out than to find ways to cooperate. When I was a counsellor at summer camp, there was one child who was very abrasive and obnoxious for the first couple of weeks, but after a time, he realised he could receive a much Better quality of attention and companionship by being kind and that allowed him to release what I think was his true nature and he really just wanted to express love for other children and the adults and receive it in return. Perhaps beforehand he was afraid that if he tried he wouldn't receive those things so perhaps it was better not to try at all. It's really important to work with children to show that they can contribute to the well-being of others and get as much attention and more respect out of doing so. And suggesting ways that children can be helpful is just one way of fostering that. Other ways are describing how you feel or what your preference is without making any reference to the student's character or offer them a choice of activities. Describe the problem and give some information and see if you can hash out a solution together. These skills are like being a martial artist. Instead of meeting a conflict head on, they teach you to take the energy of the situation and move it around a different way. So I might be experiencing an inner conflict, for example, I might want to practice yoga, but I also I just don't feel like I just don't want to do it. Now there's a part of me that got pushed around and told what to do all the time when I was a child, and it's still a rebellious child. So I like to sit down with that part and say the same as that parent. You know, I've got a problem here. I really want to get on and do my yoga, and I can see that you're not in the mood. Is there anything that I can do for you? What would you like to tell me more about that? And really tune into myself and give me get speak to myself the way that I would hope if I had the the best parent in the world they would they would speak to me and there's there's examples of this like instead of trying to force a child out the door to say wow you know you really don't like getting up in the morning do you you know what um i find the morning's really hard as well and uh, i've seen examples of uh, transcripts of, of conversations and things like that where that kind of approach can create a connection. And melt away the resentment between two parties. So, and from that connection, you can create cooperation, you can create bridges. The communication skills that you learn from reading books on raising children are completely invaluable in adult relationships as well because. Empathy is universal. Empathy can build bridges. Plus, look, we're living in a world where most people have not reached their psychological potential. There's a lot of parts of people that are not fully grown up. And if you can see that when you're speaking to a person, you're speaking to a bunch of different parts that are at various stages of development and don't all have the same... Uh, capability to stay in this, you know, the most sophisticated part of our brain is in the front. This is the bit that allows us to reason and make clear decisions. Well, when we're feeling scared or threatened or cajoled or anything, we go back here to the the bit at the back which is concerned with our survival. It's not really concerned with our quality of life. And you having the ability to know how to speak to people and uh, and in a way, I say manipulate, but I mean manipulate their energy. In a good way, I don't mean the, the negative connotation of the word manipulate. I mean, we do, we manipulate all the time. We manipulate our body. Uh, we manipulate our voice when we're speaking. When I, when I am self-hearing and trying to say, how convincingly am I coming across? Is this video go, going to be engaging? So, in that way, when you look at someone and the state they're in and can bring yourself into the present moment and work with their energy, be relentlessly empirical, don't assume that they're thinking with the most sophisticated part of their brain if, if they're not, you know, tune into this situation and if you want the kind of outcomes that you'd like, you need to have the ability to be able to listen to someone and sometimes instead of coming at the situation head on, accept and then use another angle and the books for parents uh, when your kids push your buttons they've got the information in them that you really need in order to be able to take this to the most basic level because essentially they're aimed at helping parents destimulate and make less active the least sophisticated parts of their brain so that they can be tolerant. So let's see, one is that it's got good communication skills in it for dealing with people. Secondly, it's good for taking an inventory of what you didn't get going up and saying, you know, where are there some deficits here? How can I not get the quality of care and attention that I might have needed? Thirdly, they give you a good model for dealing with yourself, dealing with your own wounding and making sure that your self talk is informed by the best information on how to communicate so that you can nurture yourself and fourth they will give you some very good tools for dealing with adult relationships because adults are just grown up kids finally you know you never know why, why when you might be in charge of someone else's kids or and the children are everywhere and if you know these skills they really work and children will really 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 love you for putting this these into practice because they're about Treating the other with dignity, respect, and um, moving your judgment out of the way so that you can meet them in an authentic place, not just being an authority or trying to exert your will on someone. I missed out on a very important book. The book is called Summerhill by A.S. Neal. I found it absolutely revolutionary when I read it. I think in my early 20s, I was kind of like, whoa, I knew it. It confirmed so much of what I believed in intuitively about our childhood and the way that the environment affects us, the way that we're trained by parents and teachers affects us and that is a book about a school in the south of England where they gave students a lot more freedom and autonomy and they helped them choose their own curriculum Another book I really strongly recommend, I think it's really, really very incredible is called Beyond Discipline from Compliance to Community by Alfie Cohen. And he talks about in that book, alternatives to the mainstream approaches to getting compliance from children, which is to punish them when they do something wrong and reward them when they do something right and he demonstrates that there are other ways of dealing with what you might call difficult or challenging behaviour that really foster more connection between adults and authority figures and the children in their care and I guess really attaining these insights may help us form better ideas about how we as a society should organize things like, even though I hate that turn of phrase, uh, criminal justice and things like that. Okay, I hope you enjoy these recommendations. Please let me know what you think if you read any of the books. Many people have told me that they've read these books based on my recommendations before and found them amazing, thrilling, etc. If you've got anything to say, anthony at beyourselfandloveit.com is my email address. And until next time, be yourself. But don't just be yourself, be yourself and love it.